How about the message in that song? Man, man, thank you, dude. I got this. I need you. Great message. Thank you, Josh. Um, my name is Ed Griffinhagen. I am one of the one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that you are here. Lots of places that you could be, but the Lord has us all together, I believe, for a reason. I believe he's got a message this morning. <clears throat> um, I, I think we had a few um, visitors come in today after the welcome, and if that is the case, you, you missed this, and we do want to get one of these little, these little welcome kits in your hand, give you the DNA of our church, kind of about, it has information about different ministries of the church, and if, if, if you are, uh, if this is your first or second time, you've never got this in your hand, please just raise your hand and Lynn will get one to you. So, <clears throat> we are in Acts chapter 9, and, uh, and we've been in Acts 9 for a, for a couple of weeks, we're we're in a, a bigger series, uh, walking through the whole book of Acts verse by verse, for the most part verse by verse, and we've been in, in chapter 9 for a couple of weeks, and, uh, and we've been talking about uh, transformation. It's funny, one of the songs we just worshipped to uh, was talking about that. Uh, let, me, let me tell you about my Jesus and the change that he brings. So we've been talking about that for, for a few weeks, about the way, last week in particular, about the way that, that the world throws this smorgasbord of, of things at us that promise to change our lives, but at the end they fail, and they fail because they're external, and the problem is not external. We talked about that last week, that the problem is internal. It's an internal problem, and internal problems scream for internal solutions, and if you remember, one of the little verses that we went through last week was Jeremiah 17, 9, and it says that, uh, or Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful. Above all things, the heart is deceitful. He says it's desperately sick. It's an internal thing. And so life change comes from the inside out. And the change happens inside, but mean you can't see what goes on inside. You've heard people say, I, can't, I don't know your heart. I can't see your heart. But I can see how it manifests itself on the outside. That's what you and I as human beings get to see. We get to see the manifestation of a changed life, of, of transformed life. On the outside, Jesus himself, he saw all of the <clears throat> messed upness in, in Israel as he's walking the dusty roads in Israel. He sees all the, the messed up stuff, the political messed up stuff, the economic messed up stuff, the, the social things, all that, all that stuff. And you, that list could be really long. But he didn't offer economic solutions. He didn't offer pre, uh, political solutions. He didn't offer social solutions. He offered new creationness. That's what he offers us. New creationness. Somebody write that down. Jenny, there's another word for the, for the next edition. But the truth is, y'all get what that word means. I know it's made up, but he offers us new creationness. The ability, here's the definition of it, the ability to walk as Paul wrote in the newness of life. We get to walk, we're, we're buried in the likeness of his death, and we're raised to walk in the newness of life. That's what it is. So our message as believers to the world, the message at Church on the Trail, our little local church, the message of, of the entirety of Scripture is that men and women desperately need change. We desperately need to be transformed inside. And only Jesus can do it, and it only happens inside, working from the inside out. And y'all, it is completely countercultural. It runs against the very grain of the world. And everything that the world is bombarding you with, this, his new creationness that he offers, is contrary to that. And Paul, he talks about that often, I guess, but he, a, a, a really good place, a really impactful place in Scripture that he talks about is, is in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2, is it, a, no, okay. He tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. And we're spiritually dead in those trespasses and sins. And he says, those are the, that's the way that you used to walk. It's the first, probably going to be the first six to ten verses of Ephesians 2. 
He says, you used to walk in those ways. You followed the course of the world. He said, you followed the prince of the power of the air. He said, that's the spirit that exists in the sons of disobedience. He said, and all of us used to walk in that. We used to live in that. He even says, among whom we all once lived. Every one of us were dead in that. He said, we were dead in the passions of our flesh. He said, we carried out the desires of the body. We carried out the desires of the mind. He said, by very nature, every one of us were children of wrath. He says that in verse 3 or 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. And he, and he says, and, and you did that, me and you, just like all of the rest of mankind. We were stuck and we were dead in the trespasses and sins. But verse 4 says, it's, there's a song and it's such beautiful language. He says, but the riches of his mercy, the riches of his grace, the riches of his mercy. Verse 5 of Ephesians 2 says that, even though we were dead, he made us alive. We were dead, he quickened our heart, he did something, and he makes us alive. And then in verse 10, he says the transformation, that transformation is complete, perfect. Not that we are perfect, that transformation is perfect. Because in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship. We are the Lord's workmanship. We're created in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For what? He says in verse 10, for good works. That God prepared those good works beforehand, that we should walk in them. The change happens inside, and visibly the world sees us walking the talk. That's what they see. They see the, they see the external manifestation of an internal change. We were dead, he made us alive, and he made us alive to serve from death to life, I really want us to understand that. You and I were dead. Some folks hear that and they, and they think, well, I wasn't all that dead. Well, no. Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, would say that we were dead. Let me ask you, because I really do want us to understand this. Let me ask you this question. Let's say that me and you, we left today, we went over to the mortuary. And we went downstairs where they embalmed the bodies at the mortuary. And he got two tables in there, and he got two, two dead people on those tables. One on each table in there. They're there for the embalming. They're draining their blood. They're getting prepared for burial, and they're going to be embalmed. One of them had died three hours ago. One of them had died three months ago. And the one that had died three months ago, that body had actually begun to decay, and rigor mortis had set in. Well, here's the question, which of the two is debtor? That sounds funny, but which of the two is debtor? One can look good and be dead, and the other can look not so good and be dead, but one is no debtor than the other. Because the definition of, think about this, the definition of, dead is the, of death is the absence of life. The definition of death is not how ugly you look in the absence of life. It's just the absence of life. And men and women without Christ are dead. Some look good and are dead. Pharisees looked good externally. What did Jesus call them? Whitewashed tombs. So some look good and are dead. Some look okay and are dead. And some are just ugly. But they're dead too. So regardless of our state of, of decomposition, we're all dead before coming to Christ. Think about Paul. The Apostle Paul, and really and truly we know probably 95% of what we know about Paul was after his experience on the Damascus Road, after he was saved. But what we do know about that, that little bit prior to that is that he was cruel, that he was hostile, that he was strong-willed, that he was zealous about his own opinions, and if you didn't uh, agree with him, he'd just as soon kill you as look at you. He was an incredible leader, though. You're probably thinking, what? He was an incredible leader. Very effective leader. He was inflexible. He was angry. He was persistent. He was, he was unloving. He was crusading. He was self-reliant. And then to imagine in this split second on that Damascus road, everything just flipped. In a moment, 
God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come crashing together on that Damascus road. Everything changed. All the old things that he hated, he would come to love. And all the old things that he loved, he would come to hate. And everybody that he used to serve, he would stop serving. And everybody that he used to scheme against, he would come to serve. Everything changes. Y'all, that is how conversion works. That's how conversion, that's what the word means. Look. Jesus is not an addition to your life. He's not an addition to your life. He is the transformation in your life. I once heard a man, he said, he said, you know, being a Christian is like putting a new set of clothes on a man. No, that's wrong. Truth is, it's like putting a new man in a suit of clothes. New creationness. It's not superficial, y'all. It's not. It's not. It's transformation. So last week, we, talked, we started talking about the traits of transformation, the characteristics that show up. We called them transformation traits. And we talked about three of them. We're going to talk about one today, but we talked about three. And the very first one we talked about was placing saving faith and trust in Christ. Clearly, first and foremost, from death to life, that's number one, foundational, everything kind of is built on that. Number two, we talked about fervent prayer. We saw Paul or Saul in this guy Judas's house, and we talked about prayer, fervent prayer that becomes a characteristic of a person who is a new creation. And then the third thing we talked about last week was faithfulness and service, how that shows up in the life of someone who is a Christ follower, faithfulness and service. And if you weren't here last week or the week before, I'd encourage you to to go back on YouTube or on SoundCloud if you want to listen to the audio. Go back and, and, and watch or listen to last week's message and maybe even the one before. Today, though, we're going to continue this conversation about that, about transformation, um, authentic, real change, and what happens in that and, and kind of what that looks like in the life of a Christ follower. And we're going to dive into the very end of chapter 9, verse 17. Looking at Paul again as a, as a, kind of as a template. Let me read you uh, verse 17 again. So Ananias, you know, Ananias is this guy in Damascus that, that, um, that the Lord gave a vision to. And he told him to go somewhere. And so verse 17 says, so Ananias departed and entered the house. Whose house? Judas's house on Straight Street in Damascus. And he laid his hands on him, him, Saul laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and what? And be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at this, this one transformation trait, this one characteristic today. And it's a huge one, and it is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, the Lord sends Ananias to Saul to help him regain his sight. And, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias says, you're not just going to regain your, your sight. You're going to receive the filling of the Spirit. So we're going to focus on that characteristic in the transformed life of a Christ follower. We're going to unpack some truths and some truths about being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, some truths about receiving the Holy Spirit, and some truths about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately upon salvation, if you are a believer, immediately upon salvation, the moment, the instant that you went from lost to found, you will you receive the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. It happened to Saul on that Damascus road. The second he got saved, happened to me on January 17, 2001, in the, in the seat of my truck, indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But the transformation... If you'd have seen me, you wouldn't have known. You would know as, as I be become transformed, as I begin, become, uh, begin to change those things that, that show up visibly in my life and in your life if you're a Christ follower. Those things begin to take place. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk about that some today too. You s begin to see that. 
So I don't want you to miss this. And I'm going to use kind of a, try to steer away from this, but I'm going to use kind of a theological term, and it is positional transformation. It's what happens at salvation. Positional transformation. In other words, the going from lost to found, the going from, from uh, no pun intended, from blind to having sight, going from having no standing before a holy God to having the ability to, 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 to be justified in front of him. In other words, it's like my position changes. I'm transformed. I'm standing here. I'm dead in my sin. And when I'm saved at that moment, my position changes. And I have standing before God. I, all of a sudden, I am wrapped and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's like all this sin and all this dirt that I have, at the moment that I'm saved, it's like Jesus has this beautiful white robe on, and, and, he, and he puts it on me. I move from over there to over here. He puts it on me, and now when the Lord looks at me, he sees Jesus' robe. He doesn't see all of my dirt and filth. Does that make sense? That is a moment in time. It happens one time, bam, and I'm saved, and I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So positional transformation. Make no bones about it, man. Paul was saved. Saul was saved on that road in that moment. But now he's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that word filled is a cool word in the Greek. That word, it means to be completely a million percent infused and, and affected by and influenced by something or someone. That's being filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit with a purpose. There's always a purpose, y'all. There's always a purpose. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a common term that Luke uses throughout Acts and it's part of a transformed life and it is really an issue of control and power. Number one, who is in control? Because you can be. I mean, you can run your life. You, you can choose to run your life or you can yield your life to him. You either do what you want or you do what he wants. You either do what you want or you do what the Holy Spirit wants. And if you're mature, hear this, you and he want the same thing, right? I think that's the definition of spiritual maturity. When there's no dichotomy between your will and his will. When there's no conflict between what he wants and what you want. That's the definition of spiritual maturity. And so the filling of the Holy Spirit, it always empowers us uh, for some kind of activity or, or to make some sort of a, a change. So it is a question of yielding to the Spirit who then empowers for something. And we see it in Acts all the time. All the time, and I think in the worship guide, and if you don't have a worship guide, you really do need one this week. Raise your hand. If you don't have one, we'll get one to you. But Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 2 says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were affected by, they were influenced by, they were infused by the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. It's in verse 4 of Acts 2. Verse 14 says, but Peter, this is just 10 verses later, but Peter standing up with the 11 lifted up his voice. He lifted up his voice because he had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Spirit-filled people don't sit around and act lazy. They get up and they do something. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 8 says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders and people, and then he preaches this incredibly powerful message. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit in, in, in verse 31 of Acts 4. It says, and when they had prayed, the place that they were gathered in began to shake, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them the words, and they spoke the words with boldness. You look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, and it's talking about Stephen. It says, Stephen was full of grace and power. Where did he get the power? Back up to verse 5 because he was, guess what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? 
great signs and miracles and wonders among the people. Whenever there is a a filling of the Holy Spirit, something happens. Change happens. Activity happens. All the time a Jesus follower is either being filled with the Holy Spirit or quenching. Scripture uses the word quenching the Holy Spirit. Do you have the power in your life to quench the Holy Spirit? Yes, you do, because you could say no. You got a chooser. You can say no to that. I hadn't said that word in a while. You can say no to the Holy Spirit, but what happens when you say no to the Holy Spirit? You're saying yes to who? To yourself. To yourself. No, 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 Holy Spirit, yes to Ed. And I'm probably thumping my chest about something. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to to always live in submission, submitting myself to the will of Christ. Jesus said in in Luke 9.23, he's talking about what it would look like to be be on his team, what it would would look like to be a follower. And he says this in Luke 9.23, Jesus' words, he says, if any of you people are going to come after me, Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me. Deny self. Deny self. Submit to the Lord, little Ed, big him. So is that denying self, is that taking up his cross, is that a once and done thing? No, Jesus said daily. Daily. Deny self every day. And it's a battle, like I'm not making, you know, uh, uh, I'm not talking about it flippantly. It is a battle that we have to fight every day to suppress ourself. Take up his cross once, no, every day. Follow me, follow me, follow me, he says. So how does all of that, that was a 19-minute introduction. How does all that relate to transformation, though? Well, positionally, I am made right before God when I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation. But then the, it's like the snowball is built in that moment. And then the snowball starts rolling down. And, it, and life ebbs and flows. And sometimes the snowball is rolling fast and getting way bigger. And sometimes super, super slow. Because life ebbs and flows. But that's when the process of transformation in my life begins. And look, I'm not saying that that he annihilates everything that I was and starts over from scratch. I'm not saying that. People get scared of that. That can reduce the Christian walk down to this checklist of of, of do's and don'ts, and I'm I'm surely not saying that. But I'm saying this process in our lives begins the moment that we are saved, and the first thing is that there are some, some decent, things about me that the Lord may say, I think I can do something with that. I think I can do something with this. Maybe even some, some quote, good, and don't misinterpret the word good, but some good character traits, maybe some potentially useful character traits. Now, maybe before me and you were saved, those good quote, good traits were misguided or misused or misapplied. But on the good side of the cross, the Lord says, I think I can use that. I'm going to keep that. I think I can use it. But then there's some things about us, about me, about you, that God would say, I got to get rid of that. I got to put that to the curb. Nothing gets kind of worthless. I need to get rid of it. So the process of transformation by the Holy Spirit when we're saved is a process of number one, Tweaking or refining things that are keeping and tweaking and refining some things that are there, some things that are useful, and eliminating some other things that he determines are worthless or useless in our lives. And there's several things about Saul that the Holy Spirit deals with, and I want to look at some of those, several of those, and I want to see if you can relate to those things in your life. There's some things first that the Holy Spirit says, I think, I think I can use this. I may need to tweak it a little bit, but I think I can use that. First one with, with Saul is leadership. I touched on that a little while ago. Saul is a leader. I'm talking about before he was saved. He's a leader by nature. No doubt. Leaders lead and people follow. 
You can dictate leadership. That doesn't mean people are going to follow. Leaders lead and people follow. And why do people follow? Because they got mad leadership skills. So Saul was an effective, powerful leader before he got saved. And the truth is, y'all, Adolf Hitler was an incredibly effective leader. Saddam Hussein was an incredibly effective leader. Mussolini, Stalin, we could go through the list. Effective leaders. Saul was a powerful, effective leader. So God did not save some poor, introverted, shy guy that had no public speaking skills and then give him leadership ability. No, God saved a man who was a born leader. It's hard enough to, 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 to begin a work in one church and, and this guy planted and ran and, and shepherded dozens of churches all across the known world. It takes mad leadership skills to do that. So the Holy Spirit took that leadership ability and turned it towards Jesus. He took the leadership ability and he turned it towards Jesus. And then we see in, in, in Paul is incredibly strong-willed guy. And I imagine he was the kind of guy that, that you couldn't talk out of anything. If he made his mind up, he's, he, you ain't talking him out of anything. He could discipline himself to do something and, and, and his will could not be changed. Very decisive, very disciplined. That is a strong, strong willpower. And the thing is, he usually accomplished exactly whatever it was that he set his mind to, he usually accomplished. And you know, the Holy Spirit looks at him and says, I think I can, I, I can do that. I think I'm going to keep that one. He sees that strong willpower and said, I'm going to keep that one. I think I can do something with it. So the Holy Spirit took his strong will and turned it towards Jesus. There was never anybody who, who pursued Christians with more of a vengeance than Saul of Tarsus. And there was never anybody who pursued God and God's will more than the Apostle Paul. Because he had that kind of discipline, that kind of drive, and that created this strong will. Super similar to that is his, he was persistent. It was his persistence. I've said this before, I think, but if you think about Paul when he's in chains in Rome, in a Roman prison, and he's, and he's shackled, literally shackled, to the Praetorian Guard, which is the, what would be, like, this would be a, a special operator in today's army. Uh, elite forces were the Praetorian Guard, and Paul is shackled to them, like, all the time. And you can take it to the bank that those people heard the gospel a thousand times a day. He was persistent. Relentless, never stopped talking about Jesus once he got saved. Well, and at the end of the day, if you look back at history, th those soldiers really led the revival charge in Rome because they heard the gospel over and over and over by this persistent, relentless little Jewish guy named Paul. Nothing would stop him when he set his mind to something. I think of the time in Acts 21 when he's, wants to go, he's on the way to Jerusalem and everybody's telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. He said, I want to go to Jerusalem. They say, no, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go. Where'd he go? Jerusalem. Never slowed him down. He said, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm off to Jerusalem. And God turns all of it around. And what did he say? What did Paul say in Philippians, in chapter 3 of Philippians? Verse 13, he says, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind me, forgetting what lies behind me, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on. It's a great verse, verse 14. It says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the higher call in Christ Jesus. The higher call. I press on. I look, uh, I, I look towards the goal, look towards the prize towards the call of God. Philippians 3, nothing stopped him. He was persistent. So the Holy Spirit took that persistence and turned it towards Jesus. Uses it for the glory of God. And then Saul had strong, inflexible convictions. Of course, before he was saved, they were 
wrong and they were misguided. But he was so strong about his convictions that he was hostile. He would get hostile about it. Hateful, murderous, really ravaging. But he had these strong convictions. But after he got saved, God used the strength of his convictions really as the genius of his ministry. Think about the strength of conviction when someone says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some condemnation? There was a question mark. No. He says no condemnation. Little bit, no. None. None. Strong conviction. There's something to be said for somebody who lives and dies for something. And, and, and Saul did. Paul did. So the Holy Spirit takes those inflexible convictions, that inflexible conviction that made up Saul, and turned it towards Jesus. Another thing about him that the Holy Spirit didn't get rid of but refined and tweaked was his bold independence. He was boldly independent. He'd just head off and evangelize anywhere and everywhere. Often alone. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He probably said that way before that song was written. The guards are shackled to him. Well, let me tell you about my Jesus. I can hear him saying it, y'all. I can hear him saying it. Acts 17. He gets to Athens, and Athens is this center of crazy religiosity, crazy worldly philosophies and all these smart people and crazy religious stuff going on in Athens. And here comes Paul, one little guy, and you'd think he'd go pray and hide and pray for some backup, but what does he do? He jumps right in the middle of the street and starts having public debates. And then he finds his way to a place called Mars Hill, and he starts preaching to everybody. And who's he preaching to? The elite, the educated people, and people that got 40 PhDs from Harvard and Princeton and Yale and, and Dartmouth and all. They're smart, elite, muckety-muck people, all the rich folks that know everything. And what is he telling them? What does he say to them? He says, you people got absolutely no idea what you're talking about. He says, you don't understand that this unknown God, because they were talking about this unknown God, was the creator of the universe. This unknown God is the God, capital T-H-E, the God, the one who spoke everything into existence. And so he tells them the truth, y'all, and he, and he tells them the truth Boldly, he boldly tells them the truth. He'd say anything to anybody. You ever know anybody like that? One minute they're talking to somebody about the weather. They're talking about the weather. And the very next minute they're like, you know, the sky turned dark and it was very stormy and the clouds were real dark the night that Jesus, the day that Jesus was on the cross. And all of a sudden they're sharing the gospel out of this conversation that had nothing to do with Jesus. You know, in an instant they're sharing the gospel bold. Bold. I got a friend of mine, Stephen Kendrick. I've never met anybody like that. He will take a conversation. You'd be talking about the carpet. And five minutes later, somebody's laying on the carpet, giving their life to Christ, face planted, because he turned the conversation to Jesus. I've never seen a human being that can do it like that. It don't matter what the conversation is. Boom, in 30 seconds, the gospel's getting shared. That was Paul, y'all. That is the way he was. Blows me away. He could and he did turn it to the gospel every time. So the Holy Spirit took Paul's bold independence and turned it towards Jesus. And then he was a highly motivated guy. You know, God wants motivated people. You know what motivated him before the Damascus Road? Hate is what motivated him. On this side of the Damascus Road, it was the love of Christ that motivated him. It was the second coming of Christ that motivated him. It was the glorious work that Jesus can do in transforming people that motivated him. And all of that, for Jesus, it was all, it's all love. Love is the, the foundation of it. So it was the love of Christ that motivated Paul. So much so that when he's, he's beaten to within an inch of his life over and over, 
And he just was motivated and just kept on going, kept on preaching, preaching the gospel again and again. So the Holy Spirit took Paul's incredible motivation. Have I trained y'all yet? And what did he do with it? Turned it towards Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. So the Holy Spirit tweaks and refines characteristics and traits that we have. But then there are also some things that he, that he eliminates. Some worthless things in our life that he, he just has to get rid of. And a biggie for Paul was hate. We just talked about that a second ago. Hate. God replaced his hatred with love. He'd been a hostile, hating, angry, persecuting Christian hater. But now there's a warmth about him. And you, you can, if you read his letters, you can just read it in there. It just is, he, his letters are just wallowing in all of that. You can read, when you read it, he's, he, you, can, you can see the love permeating his writings. Well, the folks that, he, uh, that he's writing to, his love for them and how he's constantly praying for them. You find that God completely takes away the hate that was in his heart and replaces it with love. And even the people that he, that, that he began to be the enemy of, his people by birth, Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, he cries over them. He laments over them. He's in anguish over them. He wrote about it in Romans chapter 9. I think it's going to be on the screen. Verses 2 and 3. Yeah. He says, I have great sorrow. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish like I'm just so sad. My heart is breaking for my people. My heart is breaking. He says, for, for I could wish that, that I myself would be accursed and cut off from Christ if it would lead those people, my brothers and sisters, by birth, if it would lead them to the Lord, take me now and send me to hell. That's what Paul said. What motivates that? The love of Christ motivates that. Not hatred. They hated him. He was a traitor to them. What you think the first word that came out of my dad's mouth when I told him I got saved was, you're a traitor. That's what they said about Paul. And what does Paul say? I would sell my soul to the devil right now if it would get y'all saved. What motivates that? Not hate, not hate, but love. So God takes that, that hate and replaces it with love. There's a miracle in that, man. And then Paul had this restless, restless, aggressive spirit. And God took that restless spirit away and he gave him peace. And he gave him a calm. And Paul's life is this life of peace. And he says, talks about it in Philippians. By the way, this is going to be a little aside. Philippians. Philippians is a great letter. And we are going to start in, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the first Wednesday. No, the second Wednesday, right? Second Wednesday in February, we're going to begin gathering every, uh, every Wednesday. The second Wednesday of every month, we're going to gather together in the kids' side, and we're just going to break bread together. We're going to have a meal together. It's not going to be a potluck. Did you get that, that picture? That's why it's not going to be potluck. We don't do potluck no more. <laughs> we don't do potluck. So, but we're going we're gonna to eat together. We're going to have dinner catered in. And one and just fellowship. Not a, there's not going to be a message. Y'all didn't think that was as funny as y'all are a bunch of potluck people. Then <laughs> y'all are the ones that are pressing your dog's paw in the biscuit dough or the cookie dough. Anyway, we're having dinner catered one time a month, and and not a message. We can have a little short devotional, probably ten minutes. But we're just going to hang out together. There there is something about hanging out together. There's something about not neglecting the gathering of the saints together. And so we're going to do that on the second Wednesday of the month next door. But then on the other Wednesdays, we're going to be in here and we're just going to have a, a Bible study for whoever comes. Men, women, young, old, whatever, whoever, teenagers to, to really old people, it doesn't matter. 
and it's not going to, we're not preaching a message, we're just going to walk through the book of Philippians, verse by verse, hang out together and study scripture on the other Wednesdays. So, look for that. Sorry I had to jump out of the message to say that, but let's jump back in. We're talking about Paul and his aggressive spirit, but now he's got peace and calm, and he talks about it in, um, in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, in whatever situation, this is a, such a life application couple of verses. He says, in whatever situation I am, I have learned to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, but I'm content. He says, in, in any and every circumstance, and that means any and every circumstance, he said, I've learned the, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter where I'm at. Doesn't matter if I got a dollar or a gajillion dollars. Doesn't matter if I hadn't eaten in five days or if I went to Outback last night. He says, I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. I am content sleeping in a box on 3rd Avenue or sleeping in a 20,000 square foot house, I'm content. And so the Holy Spirit took away this anxiety, this restless, aggressive spirit that he had and gave him peace. And, that, and he talks about, in Philippians as well, he talks about that peace and says, I don't even understand it. It, it so surpasses any human understanding that peace could not come from me. It couldn't come from another person. It couldn't come from, from uh, my best friend or my son or my daughter or my wife. That peace, the only place where that kind of peace can come is the Lord downloading it to me. It's the only place that peace like that can come from. So peace from crazy, aggressive spirit to peace and calm. And then he was hard. He was a hard man. He was a ruthless man. Treated people ruthlessly. Dragging them out of their houses, kicking doors down, taking people off in chains to prisons and, and abusing and killing and torturing folks. And now, he was a hard man, and now, and he says this to the church at Thessalonica in, um, in 1 Thessalonians. And he and Silas are there. Silas. They're in Thessalonica. And he's writing back to the church there, post-trip. He says, and, you know, we, we could have made demands of you. He says, he's, he could have said this now. He could have said, I'm an apostle. I'm a big shot. I could have made demands of you, me and, me and Silas. Verse 7, he says, but we were gentle among you. And he said, not just that we were gentle we were gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Y'all, the Im mental image that is painted with that, there is nothing more gentle than a nursing mother. Nothing on the planet more gentle and kind and beautiful than a nursing mother. And so that's the metaphor that Paul uses. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but we were, able, we were ready to share ourselves because you had become very dear to us. He said, you've become very dear. It's a very endearing word. You have become really important to us. Because you're important to the Lord, you're important to us. And so for Paul and Silas, they go to Thessalonica with the authority of the God of heaven. But what they did when they got there was they served among the people. And they served among the people with the gentleness and with the kindness of a nursing mama. And so the Holy Spirit took away his hardness and gave him kindness and gentleness. The last characteristic I want to talk about that, that God had to junk with, uh, with, with Paul was pride. It's usually the last one to fall in every one of our lives probably. Had to go. Got to go. So when Paul realizes his brokenness and, and, and he realizes his sinfulness and, he's, and, he, and he realizes the, um, the reality of his fleshly nature, he comes to grips with who he is on the inside. That coming to gripsness 
permeates his writings. It permeates his writings. He is overwhelmed with his undeservedness. He's overwhelmed with his, with his fleshy sort of nature. He's overwhelmed with his, he talks about it in, in, in Romans 7, his wretchedness. He says, I'm a wretched man. In 1 Timothy, he calls himself the, the foremost sinner. What does that mean? That means in the line of sinners, five million people in the line, he puts himself in the front. I'm the chief sinner. He's super self-aware. He understands God allows him to understand who he is without Christ, who he is. Very beginning of this message, we're dead without him. So Paul comes to this realization how undeserving a dead man is. And so the Holy Spirit took his pride and gave him this, the, the sweetest sort of grace of humility. And he became the humblest man in Acts chapter 14. He and Barnabas are in a place called Lystra. And y'all do realize that Acts is real history. There are crazy stories throughout the book of Acts and it's history. Luke is a historian. He's a doctor, but he's a historian. So Acts chapter 14 um, Paul and, and Barnabas are in a place called Lystra and the Lord uses them to heal this crippled guy and the people in front of a bunch of people they, the Lord heals through Paul and, 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 and Barnabas heals this crippled guy and the people that are all around start screaming and yelling about the two of them they're gods the gods have come down from heaven is what the people are screaming about Paul and Barnabas proclaiming actually that, that they are Zeus and Hermes that Paul and Barnabas are really Zeus and Hermes, that they're gods. The people go to, they're going to bring sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they're both freaks, both of them out. They're like, no way. They start tearing their clothes. Y'all know what that means when, you, when, the, when a Jew in that culture would tear their clothes? I can tell you the night I told my parents I got saved, my mama ripped the sleeve off her arm. It's, it's a sign of extreme grief or sorrow or anxiety and so Paul and Barnabas are like, they're ripping their shirt, and they're like, no, that is not us. That is not us. Don't say that. We're just men. We're just regular men. Don't be, don't be putting us up on this pedestal like that. I'm not Zeus. He said, I'm Paul. Not Hermes. I'm Barnabas. Don't, don't, don't do that. Freaks them out. Paul writes about this. You know, He can use you. Think about it. Paul says to them, I'm just a regular guy, but I've submitted to the will of Christ and he can use me. I didn't heal that guy. When you see somebody who says they healed somebody, I'm running like the wind. Paul and Barnabas didn't heal that dude. The Lord healed that dude. The Lord used them. When you hear a, 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 a Christian preacher preach a message and it's all his words, like, no. I get in that room every Sunday morning and I'm like, Lord, don't let me jack this thing up. Let it be your words and not mine because somebody's listening that's on the fence. And don't let me say the wrong thing. Let me just say what you would want me to say. Let me say what you know that somebody needs to hear. And I know I make up crazy words, but y'all know what they mean. Y'all know what they mean. And if you don't, somebody throw something or something. But Paul talks about this humility thing. 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, he talks about that God always kept him humble. Always kept him humble. And he says this in verse 7. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians in verse 7. He says, so that, and he's, he's really probably looking back to this thing in Thessalonica. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, for, to keep me from, from getting the big head. And he said, and I really could get a big head because God really did reveal a lot to me. He talks about the surpassing revelations that he's been given. And, and, God, and that happened. I mean, Paul, God connected a lot of dots for Paul. So Paul had this super knowledge about scripture and about the Lord and the character of God. And so he says, to keep, me from, to keep me from getting the big head over all of that, 
Because I know people could maybe put me up on a pedestal. Maybe start thinking that I'm something maybe super special. He says, because that I know that may happen. A thorn was given me in my flesh. A messenger, he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from being conceited. So God, he says, God keeps kind of pushing me down, smashing me down a little bit with this whole thing, this whole thorn, this whole problem in my flesh. And we don't really know what the disease is. Most, most theologian people probably think that it's some eye disease or something. But, but nevertheless, it doesn't really even matter. He had it, whatever it was, and he was humble. And so the Holy Spirit took away his pride and gave him just this sweet humility. So y'all, you see the filling of the Holy Spirit bring about a two-pronged transformation. And that two-pronged transformation manifests itself in the life of a believer. Tweaking and refining some things that that are there, already there, but are useful. And getting rid of others to be replaced, usually by the opposite of whatever the other is. Just look at this screen. Just real quick, just look at it. Holy Spirit keeps and he... Paul had leadership ability. The Holy Spirit tweaked it and turned it towards the Lord. His strong will. Is a strong will necessarily a bad thing? Definitely not. Channeled, if it's channeled well, his crazy persistence and in, in the, in in the convictions, the strength, and, the, and, and I'm going to say inflexibility of those convictions, the Lord turned all of that. And he was bold and he was independent and he was motivated. All of those things can be used for really bad stuff or they can be used for really good stuff. And so the Lord took all of that, all of the way that that Paul was wired, the things he kept, and he turns them towards Jesus. And then the other stuff, he took his hate and made it love, he took his his aggressive spirit and gave him peace and gave him calm. His hardness and ruthlessness, he turned to gentleness and kindness and he definitely took the pride, ripped the pride away and gave Paul this real humility. May I ask you, is God working on you today? I hope he is, whether you're a believer or not. I hope he's working on you. If you're a believer, is he, is he refining some skill or some talent or some characteristic or some trait that you have? Is he slowly working on, on you to use your gift of teaching, Argue, arguably? Is he working on you to use that gift of teaching to teach his word? He did that for me when I was in real estate, 10 years, teaching, training, mentoring, shepherding a couple hundred real estate agents, loved it. The day came, though, where God said, this has been a training ground, bro. He said, it's time for you to teach for my glory. Is he doing that to you? Maybe teaching whatever it is. Is he nudging you to use that that great voice of yours to sing his praises on Sunday morning and And lead people into his presence. And prepare people's hearts and minds for his word. You know, when we have musical worship, it's not for musical worship's sake. The purpose of, of, of probably two purposes, of the music is to just close your eyes, raise your hands, and worship the Lord. But it also prepares us to hear his word. There's strategery going on in it. There's a reason, there's a purpose. (laughs) You know, are you all about yourself today and the Holy Spirit's been convicting you about that? Here's a, I'm a simple person and it's a very simple way to look at it. As a Jesus follower, I say yes to his offer. The offer's out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, forever. The offer's out there. I say yes to the offer. I get saved. And then I spend the rest of my life trying to line up my will with his will. Not lining up his will with my will. No, 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 no. Trying to 
to get myself lined up with him. What, where, I, where what I want is what he wants. We said that's the definition of spiritual maturity. When what he wants and what I want are the same thing. I'm going to say the Lord has inflexible convictions. So I got to come to him. Does that make sense? You're not changing his mind. He's immutable. He's unchanging. I got to line myself up with him. So I'm going to give you a challenge. And this is this you got an insert in your worship guide. This is on one side, and we'll talk about the other side in just a second. But here's the challenge. I want you to fill out this week that left side, and I say, what are my good characteristics? And I'm going to say, um, I- I'm going to say the, the things that are useful if channeled correctly. And I know that says, what are my good, char- char- my good traits? And I'm saying that. Don't be writing about me, please. <laughs> Don't. Because you... There would the, the left side would be blank. You write about yourself. You be honest with yourself. You look at the man or woman in the mirror and say, what are the things in my life? What's kind of my DNA? And then, and then you write on the right side, have I allowed him to use them? Have I submitted to his will? Have I tried to line up my will with his? And have I said, okay, Lord, use me. I need you. Josh sang about that beautifully. I need you. Use me for whatever it is you want. So be honest and do that this week. And you can go to the next slide. And if you flip that word, that little insert over on the other side, it's what is, what's my junk? What's the worthless, what's the worthless stuff that you need to get rid of? Not need. The worthless stuff that you want to get rid of, Lord. And on the right side, have I said okay to that? Because look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And sometimes, I would argue, sometimes he takes things away whether you want them taken away or not. But I'm going to say more than all, more, way more, you know what he needs to take away, but you got to choose to let him take it away, whatever it is. And so I would write that stuff down, and on the right side of that, that page, have, you, have I let him? Have I allowed him to remove those things from my life? Because we said a little while ago, you can quench the Holy Spirit. You can say no, but you can take it to the bank that when you say no to him, you're saying yes to yourself. And so we talked about a lot today. And here's the response, I think. Probably we just went over one of the responses. For a believer, it's, it's what's on the, each side of that insert, right? It's, Lord, have I, I want you to tweak and refine the things in my life and use them for your glory and use them for your kingdom and use them. You know, your story is not for you. It's for somebody else's forever, right? It's to lead somebody else that doesn't know him into a knowledge of him and into a saving relationship with him. So I think that's one of the responses that we could, that could happen today is I do that. Another response could be, I'm going to, Lord, I'm going to let you strip the worthless stuff out of my life because I trust you and I know that you're going to replace it with something better. It's not just taking it away. He took away Paul's hate. But what did he replace it with? Love, right? He took away his restless, aggressive spirit. What did he replace it with? Peace and calmness. So that's one response. I would say this, for an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian today, um, this conversation is for you tomorrow maybe, right? If you're not a believer today, then I would say don't you go to bed tonight without considering the offer. Don't you go to bed tonight without considering what happened to to Saul of Tarsus on that Damascus road. And what am I asking you to consider? And I'm going to close with this. I'm asking you to consider the gospel, to consider the offer. And what's the offer? You turn away from your sin and turn towards the Lord. Turn away from the sin the best you can. You turn towards Him. And you believe that that death on that cross took care of a, of, a, of a penalty of sin that was yours to bear. It wasn't His to bear. But He did it for you. And you believe that. And you believe that He walked out of the grave alive three days later. 
and you just cry out to him, Lord, save me. And he will. And then we can have this conversation about transformation. That's the positional transformation I was talking about. So if that's you, I want you all to close your eyes. If that's you, I want us to pray this prayer. But I want you to know that there's nothing magical about this prayer. This prayer does not save you. This prayer, and I would argue that it needs to come out of your mouth. More for you, not for the Lord. But it needs to come out of your mouth. Somehow or the other. But the prayer doesn't save you. The blood of Christ does. But here it is. Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you. Lord, I've tried all kind of stuff, and nothing works. Lord, I want the change inside. So, Lord, I'm telling you today that I'm, I want to turn away from my sin, and, Lord, I'm turning my face towards you. I do believe that you died on that cross. I do believe that it took care of of a debt that was mine to pay. I don't know why you did it, Lord, but you did, and I believe it. And then you were raised. And Lord, I desperately need you. Please save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, y'all, we've got a prayer little station back there in that corner. If you need prayer for anything, for what we just talked about, for anything, please go back there and talk to somebody. And I'll be over by the couches out there after church uh, if anybody wants to talk if I've never, if we've never met and had a conversation um, I'll be out there, I'd love to talk to you and I said that last week and then I forgot to go out there so I'm a sinful, wretched human, I get it, I will be out there, I will be out there today um, so I look forward to talking to you I'll turn it back over to y'all